Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called This Grace of Giving. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 28th, 2015. In his book called Through the Eye of the Needle from 2012, the historian Peter Brown of Princeton debunks two myths about faith and wealth in the early church. First, that of what he calls the primal poverty of the early Christians. And second, that the conversion of Constantine unleashed massive contributions by the mega-rich. Yes, enormous wealth eventually poured into the church, but not until the late 4th century. Until then, Brown credits what he calls the down-market mediocres, or in-betweeners, with being the church's biggest supporters. He calls them the middling people, who were neither rich nor poor. Artisans, small farmers, town clerics, tradesmen, and minor officials. These people were the solid keel of the Christian congregations through the 5th century. Peter Brown's socioeconomic scenario rings true in this week's epistle from 2 Corinthians. Recall how Paul had described the Corinthians in his first epistle. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul encourages these middling Corinthians in what he calls the grace of giving, in particular to a famine relief effort to feed people in Jerusalem. In fact, Paul was repeating himself here. He had already addressed this matter in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, instructing them to set aside money each week for, quote, your gift to Jerusalem. There's a bitter irony here. It was the original Jewish disciples in Jerusalem who sold their possessions, shared equally with all who were in need, and organized a daily distribution of food to their widows. Now they were the needy, and it was the Gentiles who supported them. Famine relief flowed to Jerusalem from several far-flung churches. In Acts 11, the believers in Antioch sent money to Jerusalem during the reign of the Roman Emperor Claudius, who ruled from 41 to 54 AD. Ancient historians like Tacitus, Suetonius, and Josephus described the food shortages, crop failures, droughts, and bad harvests during his reign. Paul also describes this contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem in Romans 15.26. And just like he does in writing to the Corinthians, he mentions the generosity of the churches in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Despite their severe trials and extreme poverty, says Paul, the Macedonians distinguish themselves with their rich generosity that was even beyond their ability. Three centuries later, the pagan emperor Julian the Apostate, 
who vehemently opposed Christians and stripped them of their rights and privileges, acknowledged the generosity of Christians. He wrote, The godless Galileans feed not only their poor, but ours too. It's remarkable to see how early formal relief efforts were organized, how sophisticated they were, and how they came to characterize Christians. <coughs> In Brown's telling, this was due to the extraordinary generosity of the ordinary faithful. The people of Main Street, not Wall Street, the neither rich nor poor, everyday believers who helped others a thousand miles away in Jerusalem. <clears throat> but times changed, and so did the relationship between faith and wealth. In Brown's newest book from 2015, The Ransom of the Soul, he turns from the role of wealth in this life to its connection with the soul in the afterlife. He takes his title from Proverbs 13, 8. The ransom of the soul, the ransom of the soul of a man is his wealth. In the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, 21, in Luke 12, 33, about storing up treasure in heaven, Jesus seems to say that there's a transfer of earthly treasure to heaven through almsgiving. In other words, a spiritual reward for financial generosity. Christians helped the poor for many reasons. There's no timeless master narrative, says Brown. He documents the different ways that the social imaginations of early believers grappled with wealth. Radical, radical renunciation by the super-rich the anti-wealth of the ascetics, care of the poor, the generosity of ordinary believers, and finally, the clerical stewardship of massive wealth that was eventually accepted as God's providential gift. Brown's second book, though, focuses on one particular motive for giving to the poor. Eventually, and for many, giving alms became a purely expiatory action for the forgiveness of sin. It was a way to heal and protect one's soul. Brown admits that this rather glaring and obvious quid pro quo of giving in order to get is what he calls an acute embarrassment to moderns in general and abhorrent to Protestants in particular. Nonetheless, that's our historical record. Gary Anderson explores this same territory in his book, Charity, The Place of the Poor in the Biblical Tradition, from 2013. He argues that almsgiving is not just a utilitarian act of social justice to help the poor, Bill Gates does that, an ethical act done purely out of principled altruism with no element of self-interest or expectation of reward, as in Immanuel Kant, or even merely a sign of a believer's personal faith, as with the Protestant reformers. Rather, for Anderson, a Catholic professor of Old Testament in Notre Dame, almsgiving is a merit-worthy deed in the privileged way to serve God. 
There's a spiritual reward for financial generosity. God will repay the loans we've made to him. The logic of such thinking led to horrible abuses. By the 16th century, Johann Tetzel, Grand Commissioner for Indulgences in Germany, was credited with the little rhyme, as soon as the coin in the copper rings, the soul out of purgatory springs. The selling of indulgences, that is, purchasing the remission of your punishment in purgatory, made Luther's blood boil. Tetzel's little ditty even made it into his 95 Theses, number 27. Luther writes, They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. On this point, I'm a good Lutheran. I'm opposed to Tetzel and his tribe. You can't pay your way into paradise. Forgiveness is free. But we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We shouldn't separate alms and the afterlife too quickly or completely. To borrow from Peter Brown again, there must be some way in which heaven and earth are joined by human agency. Jesus connected alms in this life with the soul and the afterlife in his Matthew 25 parable about separating the sheep and the goats based upon our care for the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, and the prisoner. And there's his parable about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Mother Teresa joined faith and wealth in a counterintuitive way. In her heavenly scenario, there's a grand role reversal. The poor are the benefactors and creditors, while the rich are the beneficiaries and the debtors. Only in heaven, she said, will we learn how much we owe the poor for helping us to love God as we should. For my money, that sounds about right. For books this week, I review a title called Coming Out Christian, How the Followers of Jesus Made a Place in Caesar's Empire. The author is Douglas Boyne, B-O-I-N, New York, Bloomsbury Press, 2015, 206 pages. When Christianity was legalized in the year AD 313, believers comprised about 5 to 10 percent of the Roman Empire's population of some 60 million people. A hundred years later, one scholar estimates that they accounted for only 3 percent of the population. How did this minority movement accomplish that legalization? Edward Gibbon famously said that their success was based upon their intolerant zeal of Roman ways. 
That is, the new faith was utterly incompatible with and obstinately different from the old ways of the ancient empire. This trope was an undeserved stigma, says Boyne. Others suggest that it was the inherent appeal of the Christian message in a spiritually bankrupt empire. Douglas Boyne, a classicist, historian, and archaeologist at St. Louis University, rejects this black-and-white binary way of thinking and offers instead a more nuanced interpretation. In his view, there were many different ways to be both Roman and Christian. He argues that the early believers lived hyphenated lives and juggled their identities in highly creative ways. They lived in a middle ground characterized by many shades of gray. For the most part, early believers were just ignored, even entirely invisible when judged by their archaeological remains. New scholarship suggests that they weren't as persecuted as some standard histories suggest. In addition to confessing their faith, believers served in the military, went to games, enjoyed the festivals, and attended the theaters, just like their neighbors. For them, Rome wasn't the whore of Babylon, but a fascinating place to live. In short, they did their best to fit in with shared civic values, which is just what we read in the epistles. Wives were to obey their husbands, slaves their masters, and all believers were to honor the emperor. Bowen discerns a pattern not of hostility and withdrawal, not some zero-sum game, but one of engagement and dialogue. Christian success was not dependent on someone else's conversion. It was dependent on conversation. By the late 4th century, though, this civic tolerance by Christians had eroded into violent cultural classes. The burning of a synagogue, the destruction of a pagan temple, and government legislation that punished non-believers. We've been living with the sad consequences ever since. Douglas Boyne, B-O-I-N, an interesting book, Coming Out Christian, How the Followers of Jesus Made a Place in Caesar's Empire. <clears throat> For movies this week, we go all the way back to 1955, exactly 60 years ago, in a movie from France called Night and Fog. Ten years after the end of World War II, exactly 60 years ago this year, 2015, the French filmmaker Alain René documented the deserted death camps of the Nazis. His film is only 33 minutes long, but it's hard enough to watch even that much. His cinematic history begins in 1933 and ends in 1945, 
and includes still photos, archival film footage, and scenes from 1955 when he went to the camps. It's all here, trains being loaded and unloaded, slave labor, wooden bunks, gallows, ovens, and bulldozers. And for the German personnel, mansions, a zoo, orchestras, surreal slogans, and greenhouses. René's prescient conclusion, at the end of the film, he says, we pretend it all happened only once. This film is in French with English subtitles. I watched it on Amazon Instant Video for $2.99. Once again, the name of the film, Night and Fog. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a wonderfully beautiful and short poem by Wendell Berry, poet, essayist, farmer, and novelist. This poem is called The Real Work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for June 28, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.